constantly move forward. There's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I am your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. The first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're joined by an Olin faculty member, Alan Downey. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you, Dave. Thanks very much. Well, we're happy to have you here, and we like to hear about some of the interesting things you're doing at Olin, but um, we'd like to get to know our guests a little bit, and you're a faculty member at Olin. You're a prolific prolific uh, writer, textbook writer especially, but let's go back in the time machine. What were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? Right. Um, well, I started computer programming relatively young. I had a Commodore 64 when I was in high school. And that's that was the beginning of it. I've been been programming ever since. I was I was writing games. I was using it to uh, connect to bulletin board systems, BBSs, and and talking to the the world of programmers out there. And that that's that got me started. Yeah, and and uh, and actually, I was and but your formal education as a computer scientist came later. You uh, did a PhD in CS, but uh, I noticed we share a common cause uh, with our bachelor's and master's degrees in civil engineering. Um, so how did uh, you went from the computers to civil engineering and then uh, made computers the, the mainstream? What was that about? Right. Well, I think I've always been interested in using computers in the context of engineering. Mm. So uh, I ended up Computer science, uh, uh, sorry, civil engineering had a program at MIT when I was there that was uh, really focused on computation being applied to engineering. So that was my undergraduate focus. Um, And then for a master's degree, I was working in transportation, and I was working on a computer vision system for evaluating pavement. So we had a, Hmm. a van with a video camera hanging off the back. We would get footage of the road surface. And I was doing all this computer vision stuff, not really knowing what I was doing. And that was part of the reason I ended up doing a PhD in computer science was to get some of the background where I felt like I was making things up as I went along and wanted to get a little bit more of a foundation. Yeah, I um, actually, in some sense, parallel, I liked computers early and and went into civil to do... um, civils and, and fluid mechanics and pipe flows and, and then then later pipe flows uh, as optimized by genetic algorithms and so uh, the, but I know I didn't uh, I didn't bite the bullet and, and uh, I'm uh, although some of my colleagues at Illinois 
concerned that I'm among the um, uh, highly cited computer scientists there. I, w- I did it all as a, under the rubric of civil engineering. So, uh, and but enough about me. Let's uh, on this program. We're also interested. Well, we're very interested in. Um, Unle- well, what Mark Somerville and I called unleashing ex- experiences in the book, A Whole New Engineer. And and the sense of uh, that labeling was that, um, well, actually, just ask it as a question. What experiences or individuals um, helped give you the courage uh, to go your own way when necessary? <laughs> uh Probably innate arrogance. <laughs> okay, so self self uh, self in, self induced courage. Um. Uh, I I suppose I think um, I think there's a fundamental part of the engineering mindset, which is that mm. if you if you see something that's not working right, if you see something broken, there's just a compulsion to fix it, um, and I think that that has applied for me in developing software that I always want to fix it, I always want to make it better, and uh, also as a, as a teacher, as an educator, um, if I see things that aren't working in some ways, they, they make me angry, and that's where I get the energy to, to want to fix them. Well, and I wonder, too, if some of your unleashing, you know, that came from that Commodore 64, uh, there's this nice video that has uh, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg that Code.org has about the sense in which uh, computers themselves are these nice little universes that are are sort of self-efficacy generators. Comment. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. It's it's a world where you have a lot of control. And I think if you get used to the idea that you should be able to fix things, and then yeah. when you get in the real world, obviously it's harder, but I think the same feeling is there, that if something's broken, we should be able to fix it. And, and um, so there's... Um, you know, you've been a faculty member now going back... Um, what to 2003? So that's those are pretty early days at uh, at all. And you worked at some other schools before then. What uh, what prompted you to um, to take a look at take a look at Olin? Right. Well, I, you know, I started out at liberal arts colleges because I think that's an environment that I really appreciate. And being in computer science there, I had a chance to bring a little bit of engineering to a liberal arts environment. And, you know, the liberal arts colleges for a long time have really excluded engineering uh, to a fault, I think. So I enjoyed playing that role of trying to bring, bring engineering in through the door of computer science. Um, and then I heard about Olin, and I think right from the beginning, it was just a, an appealing mission. It was motivated by uh, some of the th- same things that I had seen about engineering education. I was, as I said, I was an undergrad at MIT, and then I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley, which are, you know, great, great schools, but the education that they were doing was in some ways not right for people to go and do engineering. There were, you know, a generation of professors who were really training students to be professors, um, and the vast majority of, majority of them, that's, that's not where they were headed. So a lot of the language coming out of Olin about let's take a broad approach to what engineering is and what engineers need to know, and let's get hands-on, real, authentic engineering experiences into the undergraduate program. 
uh, I heard those two things, and that that pretty much had me sold. So you went and and you did it. What uh, what was the exp- you know, so you you'd uh, been to the MITs and the Berkeleys of the world uh, for your own education. You you'd worked at other you'd worked at other liberal arts schools. What what was it like uh, going to Olin? It was really good. Um, one of the nice things that happens when you talk about changing engineering education is that you attract the people all over the country and all over the world who, who want to work on that mission. So yeah. everybody here is passionate about undergraduate education, which is, makes it just a great place uh, for me to work. I learn a ton from my colleagues I've had a chance to co-teach classes with people here where I would never have taught these classes. If I were in a computer science department at a big university, I would probably not even talk to these other members of the faculty, much less co-teach a class with them. Um, So I've had a chance to uh, co-teach user-oriented design um, and really stretched my my brain by doing that. Um, I've co-taught some of our introductory classes doing modeling and simulation. Um, I co-taught signals and systems as part of our uh, ECE major, but bringing to it a software approach. Um, so it's just, it's been a great place to work. I feel like I learn a ton from my colleagues and also from the students. Uh, they're just, it's a great group of students to work with. Well, and, and, and I think you've already partially answered this question, but maybe there's some other other things uh, that you can elaborate on. In, in what ways has Olin um, been a good environment for your development as an educator slash scholar? Right. That is actually, that has taken some time to come into focus. But in the last few years, we've had a chance to really rethink what it means to be a faculty member, what we want our faculty to do and how we then evaluate them. Uh, early on, I think we adopted the default, which is that, yeah. you know, of, of course, professors should do research. Of course, they should teach some classes at least well enough. And they should, uh, you know, serve on a couple of committees as service to the college. And we'll just add that all up. And if it's, and if it's good enough, you'll be promoted and, and, and all that. Um, and that's just not right for what our mission is. We're here to change things. We're here to innovate both in the classroom and you know, all of the things that we do internally and externally. So the incentive structure for a while wasn't really getting uh, what we wanted. And I think that's come into focus recently with an answer that's really very simple that says, look, this is a mission-driven institution. Our job is to educate our students and to change engineering education uh, all over the country and the world. So when we evaluate faculty, we should look at those criteria. What, what have you done to change the world, <laughs> in some sense, yeah. is the question we should be asking. Um, and that's been great for me because uh, the biggest project that I work on is this series of textbooks where I'm trying to take the idea of computation and apply it to everything that we want to learn, working our way through the engineering curriculum and and science and related topics, taking a computational approach. And I want to develop that material here, which I can do, because when I propose that I want to teach a crazy new class, the college says yes. 
when I offer that class, there are students who are willing to sign up and try something new and experimental, and they're forgiving when things don't work, and we, we develop things together. Um, and then when I have material that's ready to go out to, to the outside world, I can, I can publish it, I can travel and present workshops, and then when I come up for promotion and reappointment, that's my case. I can point to these materials, I can point to people who are using them, people who are talking about it, change that's happening because of this project, and, and that, that makes sense. That's not me, you know, I have to have a certain number of journal articles or I have to have a certain number of book chapters and we're going to add it up. I'm making a case that I'm contributing to the mission of the college. That's really, you know, that's, that, that, you know, your faculty listening to that, uh, you know, scratching their heads, wondering how that's even even possible because, you know, in most places, even even places that claim to care about undergraduate teaching where it's the scholarship and the, the number of journal papers in, in respectable and accepted places that... Uh, um, is is the measure so that that sounds as though it's uh, very freeing for him. It is. It is. I don't have to worry about respect respectable places. I I almost deliberately publish in the least respectable places possible. <laughs> well, and and actually, I as a as someone who was in a field that wasn't a field at the time, um, I don't think it's very well appreciated at at the respectable schools that the constraint that publishing in respectable places brings, I, you know, in terms of, um, um, and, and, and how severe that is. And by saying, well, the, only these journals are worthy. Well, if you're in a field that doesn't yet have journals, um, and you're in the process of creating, creating the field, it's even that, that become, that becomes difficult. And it just seems to enforce, the status quo of the past as opposed to um, bringing about change, let alone if, if we're in a world that requires fairly full rethinking of, of what education is about, uh, allowing people to, to spend considerable time on that task. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, if, you, if you know you have to get one or two journal articles per year or what, you know, whatever the numbers are, you kind of have to play it safe. You have to do research where you already know what the answers are going to be, and you know when you're going to have when you when you are going to be done, and when you can publish. And you, yeah. you can't take you can't take big swings. You can't do radically innovative things. Well, I always was suspicious of my journal articles when we got back reviews that were fairly laudatory because I knew that we hadn't done much. It was like, well, so this is well accepted by people. It was the ones that got back the vicious snarky reviews that we knew we were onto something because it was challenging something that somebody cared about. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so it was actually a measure. We almost took in my research group. We took pride on the on the snarky ones and you know figured out a way to publish them regardless of what the what the reviews were, and actually, that's all changed. And I, I think this is a topic that we're going to get into in a in a minute. But I, I, you know, as I was coming up as an academic in the '80s, and then the '90s hit, and the web browsers hit, and and you start, I started to put tech reports online. The whole dynamic of publishing changed in a way that kind of caught everyone by surprise. Comment. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know the. 
process I go through now when I'm working on research, maybe I'm doing some kind of data exploration, usually yeah. the first draft is just going up in my blog. Yep. And it's going, it's going up on the timescale of days or weeks. I'm just yep. putting pretty raw material up there. I'm putting it into GitHub so people can get the data, they can get the code. If I've got something after a while, I'll, I might publish it in Archive or something like that, which is not peer-reviewed, but it's just a, you know, it's a documented copy that has a timestamp on it. Yep. Um, and there, there are a lot of levels now, uh, at, you know, different timescales from days to weeks to months and different levels of um, measurement or me- levels of, of inspection, uh, all the way from a full you know, journal peer review, but all the way down to much lighter weight mechanisms. And I, and I want to get into um, especially your textbook publishing here in the next segment. But before, before we leave the topic of Olin, I'm just curious what um, – Maybe what were the? I don't. I'm not exactly sure how to ask it. What were what were some of the most surprising or most surprising or thing that you learned or way in which you influenced a student or something at Olin? It seems like everyone Olin people seem to have stories about something surprising or something really cool. So what's your what's your cool Olin story? I, I think the whole enterprise is really cool. I think it's amazing that we, we pretty much started from a dead standstill less than 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, when, when we were rolling out the first round of the curriculum, you know, the first year we taught the freshman curriculum. Yeah. And then the, sec, the second year we had to teach the first year curriculum again while also creating the second year. And it ramps up. The third year we had to do one and two again while creating three. Yeah. And we, we painted ourselves into some nice corners. By the, by the time we got to year four, the number of things that we had put off, that we said, oh, okay, this is great, we're going to put this off, but we're going to get to it in the senior year. <laughs> by the time we got there, we had a, a big mound of dirt in front of the bulldozer. <laughs> uh, but we managed to excavate ourselves. And uh, it, after a few iterations, I think we've, we've got a, a, a curriculum I'm, I'm really proud of, and it's just... Continuing to evolve, continuing to improve things, identify the things that aren't quite right, and, and keep refining them, and every once in a while, just taking big chunks and starting over again. Nice. Let's uh, let's take a bit of a break, and, and uh, we'll talk textbooks in the next segment. How about that? <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Alan Downey from uh, Olin College. Stay with us, and we're going to talk about textbooks in the next segment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com 
or browse the Three Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. I'm Dave Goldberg, and welcome back to Big Beacon. Beacon Radio, the second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates Incorporated. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your organization and reading lessons. Ask the guest questions or make comments at hashtag Big Beacon. The second segment is also sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back with Alan Downey from Olin College. And uh, Alan, we were talking a little bit in the last segment about the way in which the web has changed uh, publishing. And you're a passionate writer of uh, t- textbooks. And uh, some people sort of flip flippantly say that the textbook is dead. Your thoughts? I hope not. Um, <laughs> I think it is still a useful way to communicate ideas up to a point, and I think there's a version of the textbook that is dead, and it's the thousand-page book on glossy print, and it costs $200, and the students don't read it. I hope that that model is dead, but I still think that written words on a page, whether that page is, is paper or it's on yeah. the screen, yeah. it's still a useful way to convey some kinds of information, definitely not everything. But if I can write down 10 pages that students can read and understand between class sessions, and then they can come into class and we will now take those ideas and test them and exercise them and apply them and develop them and extend them, I think that foundation is still a very useful tool I think the key, though, is to partition out which things, which ideas, uh, which kinds of knowledge lend themselves to being written down in that way, okay, and let's use that medium, but then other ideas, other kinds of knowledge, we need different media, we need different kinds of uh, classroom experiences. Well, some of this is about, uh, some of what I think we're talking about here is that uh, uh, Books worth reading, worth reading are worth reading still. And, and so, and 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 writing that is engaging so that it's worth reading is 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 part of what we're talking about, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think engaging is part of it. I think another part is just being written so yeah. that people can understand it. Yeah. There's there's a common, especially in engineering, there's a common assumption that the students are supposed to go read 50 pages, which I know that they will not understand, and then my job as the instructor is to explain them so that they understand what they read. 
Well, why not give them something in the first place that they can read and understand? And that's part of my whole process for writing textbooks is I try to get into a very tight feedback loop where the students are reading and then when they come to class, I get feedback either, you know, maybe they do a reading quiz and I get explicit feedback or maybe just from working with them, I, I understand implicitly, oh, you know, they read chapter three, chapter three didn't make sense, I need to go back and revise chapter three. And maybe this is getting back to our first topic about seeing things that are broken and fixing them. It, how frustrating it would be to use the same textbook over and over and you know that when you get to chapter three, everybody's going to be confused and you're going to have to undo it. Why not just fix chapter three? Yeah, and so, so okay, so I heard a part in there. So part of it is the, proce- the process of writing you're talking about involves a lot of feedback so that you're making sure that, that reader, real readers actually under, understand that if we're writing for understanding, that that has to be tested as part of, part of what I'm hearing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and then, and as part of this, you've, uh, and actually some time ago, and you've revised it recently, you wrote a, um, a, a textbook manifesto. Um, what, what prompted, what prompted you to, to do that? Right. Well, a big part is what I was talking about a minute ago, which is yeah. just this, the, 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 the death spiral, which is that teachers adopt these books that are a thousand pages and they'll, they'll give an assignment that might be 50 pages of dense technical material. And it's just not a reasonable expectation. So, you know, maybe at the beginning of the semester, you'll have a few enthusiastic students who really try to read everything that they're assigned but the majority won't, or, or it can't. I mean, I'm not, even, I'm not blaming them. I'm not saying they're bad people. It's just not a reasonable expectation. But then they come to class, they, they won't have read, uh, or if they tried to read, they won't have understood it. And so as an instructor, I'm going to have to explain it. Well, once I start explaining it, the students very quickly realize that there's no point in reading in the first place, because... That's what the lecture is going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to spend a class session reading the textbook to you. Um, so very quickly, they're not doing the reading, and the, cla- you know, the classroom experience is, is degrading very quickly. So well, and from- yes, yeah, no, no, go ahead. I, and, and as I'm thinking about that, so the... Um, so this and the degrading is you know so there's you know so um, we send we have in the past sent kids off to do this they don't do it the faculty members there to sort of uh, interpret the things that were written in in understandable English rather than the kind, the way in which it was written and some of it though it seems like it seems as though we're talking about the in some ways, the future, and this goes to my my first question about the death of textbooks. In some ways, what, what we're talking about here is the future of educational materials generally. Uh, that that uh, in in the in a in a web age with so much stuff out there that almost nobody's going to tolerate 
not understanding something. It's like, so there's like a new threshold, you know, so if, when you can go click on Wikipedia, you can go quick on, click on uh, uh, lectures by people at great schools that are great lectures. There's uh, so much stuff out there that the, that, that putting something out that doesn't re- result in understanding, and actually in, in the case of programming, the ability to do something um, is just not, not tolerated anymore. It's just not acceptable. Is that... Is that am I am I going too far? No, think? I think that's exactly right. It's just we've we have blindly accepted this expectation that I shouldn't expect the students to be able to read and understand a textbook, and they don't expect to be to understand the material in front of them, and that's that's absurd. So I think you're right. The expectation should be if you're a student and you don't understand what you're being asked to read, whether, and whether it's reading or watching a video, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what the medium is, but you should expect to understand what's being put in front of you. And if you don't, then that's a problem that you should be working toward fixing. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will be easy. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will be fun. It will still probably take some effort. But if, as a student, if you are putting in that effort and looking around the room, if you see your other classmates are also putting in the effort and your other classmates also don't, don't understand the material, that is something that should be fixed. That's not normal. That's, that shouldn't be acceptable. Well, and, and, and your manifesto is actually very, you, it's actually one line. Students should read and understand textbooks. The, the reading part is, that's, so the critics of test, textbooks would take issue with. You say, no, there's a place for textbooks, as you were saying before. They should under, understand, and then you sort of, you, you explain for all the different, for, for uh, authors, for publishers, for professors who, who buy textbooks, and for students, what the ramifications of that of that simple statement is uh, is about, but I, I just um, but and actually and I think we'll be and I think we'll be talking about it. Um, I think there's a sense in which maybe the topics that you cover have you're in a nice place. So you you've written think DSP, think Java, think Base, think Python, think Stats, think complexity, and and a lot of those actually all of those are are subjects that lend themselves to computation. And I'm wondering the extent to which your books can be working books that that have code in them that people can do stuff with. That actually, again, but we're back to the to your Commodore 64 and that that universe where you get to control things and close things. To what extent? To what extent is it uh, uh, easier to accomplish the task of understandable, even operational? books in the, in the domains that you operate in. Right. I, mean, I think that's a good point. And, and I think you're right that the, the topics that I'm covering and the tools that I'm using go together. And maybe this isn't the right approach to everything. Um, but for the things that I'm doing, you're right. I can put code in front of students and they can interact with it. One of the tools that I use a lot is Jupyter Notebooks, which yeah. is a, for, a format for code where I can distribute the code. So a student can get it from GitHub. They can run it in their own environment on a you know, laptop or whatever. And what they get is blocks of text that explain what's going on and a block of code that shows what the examples are. 
And then yeah. when you execute the block of code, the results from that execution are right there in the notebook. So it's, it's all there in one place. And there's a nice, I think, pedagogic flow there, which yeah. is on the first pass through, a student could just execute the code. So they're not doing any programming, but they're just seeing here's what the program looks like and here's what it does. And on a second pass, they can make modifications to it. So they can do lots of little experiments. Yeah. It's, it's either, either I give them an exercise where I say, you know, go back and change such and such a line of code and run it again and see what it does. Or hopefully after doing a couple of those, the students start to generate those themselves. They say, oh, okay, I think I understand what this does, but let me make a change. And by making that change and executing it, they're testing their hypothesis about what it does. Uh, and this is one of the ideas about code that I'm really excited about, which is the idea that when you write a program, you are taking ideas out of your brain and representing them in the form of a program. Yeah. And now when you test it, now when you're debugging that program, you are debugging your brain. You're de debugging your understanding. Yeah. And you're going to be confronted quickly. If you have a misconception, you don't have to wait to take an exam in three weeks, and then somebody has to mark it wrong, you're going to get that feedback very quickly. Yeah, and I and I and and, and I, I think and I want to explore the the whole um, um, programming as a way of thinking thing with you in the next segment. And I want to, but I want to stay with this whole with the. Uh, Textbook of the future, educational materials of the future. Actually, you've uh, you've been inspirational to one of our guests, and someone's uh, uh, Dan Heck has written. And uh, here is my build on your manifesto. Thanks for your inspiration. Students should read and understand textbooks. You wrote that. Understanding means the student is engaged to become competent, curious, and contributors. How would you comment about what Dan has contributed here? I think that's a good point, and if I'm understanding him right, he's saying that the understanding is a first step, and that the second and maybe third steps now are developing the mastery that goes with that and developing the ability to use that understanding, to apply that knowledge, so that now you as a student can do something now that you couldn't do before you read, what, you know, read whatever it was and did whatever you did. Um, and I think that's coming back to this, you know, choosing different mediums um, at different stages. I think for me at least, uh, reading I think still works well as that first stage provided that it's followed by those other stages. I'm certainly, I'm open to other media. I don't know where the future of this is going. You know, maybe we won't be reading books 10 or 100 years from now. Um, but I think some of the other things that exist now, things like uh, you know, videos and other kinds of interaction, I'm finding them very valuable for the second or third stage of that process that we were talking about. At least for me, I'm still finding the written word to be the best medium for that first stage. I I might turn out to be wrong, but that's kind of where I am now. Yeah, and well, I don't, and it it and it may be. Um, I think one, you know, this the this special nature of things that can that lend themselves to computation. So, uh, and I actually I'm having been out of the. 
textbook business for a while. I was Jupiter wasn't around, um, GitHub wasn't around back when I was coding. So a lot of things have a lot of things have changed. But if you think of, you know, think about the, the, I mean, there's and actually I was having this conversation with uh, Lorena Barba at um, at uh, George Washington. Um, who also uses a lot of Python in her um, fluid mechanics courses, and this this has really changed how how people think about preparing educational materials. And I'm wondering, so suppose now you're an English professor or somebody else, and 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 we and and there's certain nice things things like GitHub and and the ways in which things get forked and then built upon seems to be essential to sort of um, the kind of sharing that we'd like to have in educational transformation. How do, how do we morph these tools so that they can go beyond things that are computation-oriented? Boy, it's, you know, it's a, it's a good question. And, and, you know, so far I've been starting with the easy stuff, starting <clears> with the, the topics that obviously lend themselves to the tools that I'm using. Sure. But it's definitely my long-term plan to see how far this goes. So I think engineering is, is kind of the obvious stuff. Mathematics might be. I think science might be. I think you could certainly get into social sciences. Um, can you get all the way into the humanities with a, picking a computational approach? I'm not sure, but I think there's a version of this process that is applicable which is working backwards from what you want the students to be able to do. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, when we write goals for our classes or we talk about student outcomes for classes, it's always tempting to talk about the things that we want them to know, the things that we want them to appreciate, and so on. And that's, that's very appealing, but I think we also have to talk about what we want the students to be able to do. And if you can answer that question in a concrete way, then you can work backwards. Well, okay, so if they need to be able to do that, what are the experiences that they have to have? What's the knowledge that they have to have? How do we practice it? How do we evaluate it? Um, Yeah, nice. Talking way beyond my depth, if I'm telling anybody how to teach humanities, I really don't know. (laughs) But at least that's an approach that I might start with. Yeah, let's let's take another break and come back and we'll dive a little bit more into this uh, whole theme of uh, programming as we've started into it a bit, but this whole theme of programming as a way of thinking. Great, thank you. This is Big Beacon Radio with a special guest, Alan Downey. Uh, the next segment, we're going to kind of dive more deeply into programming as a way of thinking. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website 
www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us Wednesday, July 19th at 4 p.m. Eastern for Four Keys to Ineffective Educational Change or How to Botch Transformation Without Really Trying. Learn the four mistakes that people make in modern change initiatives and how to overcome them. And learn how you can join Big Beacon's communities of educational innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And we're back with Alan Downey. We've been talking, uh, well, we've been talking about Olin. We've been talking about textbooks. And actually, before we leave uh, textbooks, um, you've written a bunch, um, which uh, which was uh, – Oh, which was your most fun or interesting to write? Oh, I think the the one I the one I like the most is usually the one I'm working on. Uh, at at the moment, I'm doing uh, a version of modeling and simulation. This is a class that we've taught at Olin for almost ten years now. We've been teaching it with MATLAB for a while, yeah. uh, and that's had that's had some good properties, but it's got some problems. So we're switching. This fall, we are going to try it in Python for the first time. So I'm working on the textbook that we're going to use, and partly I'm testing this idea that Python has a kind of expressiveness that lets you communicate ideas when you, when you write uh, programs in, in Python and other modern languages you, you can express ideas at the level that you're thinking rather than having to compile it down into low-level languages. And my theory is that this is going to be a very different class because we're able to work at that level of ideas without, I hope, getting completely sunk at the level of the details, at the level of the code. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to uh, test. I, I'm also interested as a... As a certified IEEE certified pioneer in evolutionary computation, I'm interested in your um, your book, uh, Thinking Complexity. Uh, what prompted you to write that uh, book, and and what was in your surveying complexity uh, science at the time? What what was the, what were some what was the most interesting thing you learned? Right. So that book is about complexity science, and it was prompted. I actually started that when I was teaching at Wellesley. And I was developing a class in scientific computing targeted for people who were not necessarily computer science majors, but people across the natural sciences and Mm. social sciences and mathematics, looking at places where we're applying mathematical models to understand the physical world and social systems and and other things. and I also, I just think it's a great set of topics. Complexity science is, is a really interesting set of ideas. It's relatively recent, so it's you know, late 20th century for the most part. 
yep. which is a lot more recent than most of the science curriculum at most places. <laughs> um, so it's a chance to get to the present. It's a chance to get to some topics quickly by using computational tools. Um, I ended up, I looked at uh, graph algorithms is a big part of it. So looking yep. at things like uh, small world networks yep. uh, and scale, scale-free networks. Um, that was also a chance to teach some algorithms and data structures. So there's some computer science material. And then the other thing, complexity science, inevitably gets you to philosophy of science. If you start talking about these kinds of physical models and asking questions about, you know, what are these models? What are they telling us about the world? How do yep. they work? You come face-to-face with all the fundamental questions in the philosophy of science. So I think it's just a, it's a fun topic that gives you an opportunity to, to delve into a lot of different areas. And and thanks for that. And uh, I'm indulging my my interests on, but it's my show. I guess I can do that. But um, yeah, so in April you this year you wrote a, a piece for Scientific American uh, uh, called uh, "Programming as a Way of Thinking." And what uh, what prompted you to write that piece? That's a, that's a set of ideas I've been thinking about for a while, and it's really it's the foundation of this book series which is the idea that programming is not just translation. It's not just taking ideas that we understand and maybe expressing them in mathematical notation and then just taking math and translating it into code. And that was, I think, for early generations of, of programming, that is, that's kind of how it was. If you look at things like you know, Fortran, the name Fortran means formula translation. And, and that was the idea, that we were doing all the real work with math, and then the code was just the implementation part. And I think that has changed. We have programming languages that are very different, you know, qualitatively different in the way they express ideas. Um, and that includes both you know, imperative programming, but also declarative programming and functional programming just different ideas about what a program is. And languages like Python that I think are very readable in a way that, that previous programming languages were not. And that really changes things because if I want to teach you an algorithm and I give it to you in the form of a C program, chances are you're going to have a hard time reading it. You're not going to understand it by reading the code. I'm going to have to use another language to explain it to you. So I'm either going to use mathematical notation or I'm going to use pseudocode. And that was you know, programming for a long time. You would use pseudocode. You would use flowcharts. These were all ways of taking the ideas in your head and gradually compiling them one stage at a time down to the level of whatever the programming language is. Mm-hmm. But in some sense, what you're doing there is you're making the programmer do the work that the computer could do. If instead you could just teach the computer how to understand the language at the level that we're thinking about it, the way that works is that you build the language up toward the problem that you're trying to solve. And this is, I I quoted in that article, uh, Paul Graham, who's an essayist who writes about software. And I won't get this quote, quote right, but the idea that he said is that when you do that, when you build the program up, so that you're expressing ideas at the level that you're thinking of them, 
what you get is a solution that's written in a language that looks like the language was designed specifically for that problem. Uh, because in some sense it was. Yeah, so this is... Um, yeah, so the, and so if we... Um, so and so when in the study of programming languages, there's you know there's um, discussion of you know, at, at some level all these languages are computationally equivalent. You know, so that so we're you know we're we're, we're not we're talking about a Turing, a Turing machine equivalence at some level. So so we're at some level we're talking about expressiveness of a language um, and but. You're going beyond expressiveness to say understanding and almost um, oh um, well it's I guess and 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 these are these are these are to a certain extent old old ideas in in programming too of of um, having code reflect um, so we used to need and. and we used to need lots and lots of comments and documentation to tell us what a simple piece of code was doing if it was written in uh, IBM 360 assembler or something. But right. uh, as we got to higher level languages, we needed less and less of that. And now we're now we're now you're talking about this at at the level of almost a kind of transparency or readability or. Almost clarity. I'm I'm struggling with right. the language, but help help me out if I'm not hitting the the mark here. No, you're you're absolutely right, and and readability is is one of the things that I that I mentioned, and and it's readability matters. So yeah. you're you're right that in theory all of these languages are computationally equivalent, but in practice they're not for for two reasons, and one is expressing certain ideas is much simpler in some languages. Than, yeah. in, than in others. And if you are always working in a language that requires all of this elaboration, at some point you just get to the limits of human cognition that you, we can't manage that much complexity in our right. brains. So part of what's going on when you have a language that is more concise is it lends itself to chunking, which is this tool in cognitive science that just says, look, we can... We can manipulate right. large, complicated ideas if we can abstract them into chunks. And that's, you know, that's a fundamental idea in cognitive science, but it's also a fundamental idea in engineering. That, you know, that's how we build large, complex systems, by decomposing them into small pieces and then composing the solutions. Um, so that's one. That's one of the reasons that readability matters, which is that it helps us manage our own cognitive limits and the other is communication, that when you're writing a program, part of the reason is so that you can execute the program on a computer, but the other part is that that program is a form of communication between you and other programmers. If you're collaborating on a project, you need to be able to read each other's code. And then also this idea that the program can be a way of communicating and educating, and yeah. that's that's where I'm going with, with a lot of the books that I'm working on, which is moving away from the default assumption that math is the only language, math notation is the only way that we have to communicate these ideas. And that you know, the programs, in some ways, the program is an implementation of a mathematical idea. I don't think that's right. I think 
Mathematical notation is an artifact. It's a language that we designed. It's a formal language that was designed by people specifically to to communicate mathematical ideas. And it's really good at communicating mathematical ideas. But in the same way, programming languages are also formal languages. They were also designed by people, but they were designed specifically with the intent of communicating computational ideas. And they're really good at it. So instead of trying to make everything go through mathematical notation, I think we should use the language that's appropriate for the purpose. And if we're talking about computational ideas, very often the best language to express those ideas is a computational language. Yeah, we're and I would love to continue this. We're running uh, we're running a little low on on time, and I want to give you the last um, give you the last word here. And so, um, uh, with about two, uh, got a couple of minutes left, um, we've talked about any number of things. We've talked about the early days of Olin. We've talked about um, the future of textbooks, and we've been talking about the ways in which uh, programming and computation um, are are important uh, ways of thinking. So what what would you like to leave our readers or listeners with? <laughs> I guess one last thought, uh, you know, thinking about the textbooks, we talked about this this feedback loop, and that's turned out to be hugely important. I started putting textbooks out under free licenses that let other people, uh, adapt them, they can redistribute them, they can translate them into other languages. And, you know, at the time I was just thinking of it like open source software, that, you know, maybe someone will help me fix the bugs. But it's turned out to be a lot more than that. People have taken these books and translated them into other programming languages, and they've sent me back changes that they've made. And what that made me realize is that the materials like this, all kinds of educational materials, When you put them under a free license, it's not the same product anymore. It's not like, here's a book and I can either put it under a free license or a restricted license. It's it's a very different thing. You are bringing readers in as collaborators in 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 your project, and some of those readers will go on and become writers. And I've had at least two cases of people who have picked up one of my books and they ended up replacing the whole thing. They ended up writing their own book without ever intending to do it. It yeah. snuck up on them. And I, just, I think that's such a great model for producing, you know, certainly educational material. I think it's yeah. natural for educational. But I think all kinds of things lend themselves to that kind of collaborative model. Awesome, Alan. Thanks so much, and and best wishes on on uh, on your book writing uh, journey. Thank you for and thank you for joining Big Beacon Radio. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Been listen listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Special guest to our special thanks to our guest Alan Downey. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. 
Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.